Well, let me uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to Genesis chapter 19 for our time of study in God's Word uh, this morning. Genesis chapter 19, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis, and as we continue in our study this morning, we come today to Genesis chapter 19, uh, verse 30. My goal is to look at verses 30 through 38, and if you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be the preservation of Lot's family, the preservation of Lot's family. Um, One of the commentaries that I have been using as uh, we've been doing our series through Genesis uh, is a commentary by H.C. Leopold. At the end of each chapter of his commentary, he has a little section called homiletical suggestions where he shares thoughts on how various passages uh, in the preceding chapter of his commentary could be handled from the pulpit by pastors as they minister to their congregations. So you can imagine how interested I was to read his suggestions for how to handle verses 30 through 38 of Genesis 19 uh, this morning. And you can imagine my dismay when regarding our passage today, Leopold says, certainly all must agree (laughs) that verses 30 through 38 cannot be a text for a sermon. This isn't just his opinion, apparently. He says all must agree. And to make it even more emphatic, he says certainly all must agree that verses 30 through 38 cannot be a text for a sermon. So let's just close our service with prayer. Actually, this will be the text uh, for my sermon today, and I'm preaching on this text for two reasons. Number one, because it's in the book of Genesis that we're doing a series through. We should have thought about this before we (laughs) pick the book of Genesis to study through. And I am preaching on this passage this morning because I know that you as a congregation can handle this. You can handle a text like this. Our passage today is troubling from a variety of standpoints, but this is actually part of the challenge and the benefit of verse-by-verse expository preaching through the Bible because it forces us to deal with passages and topics that we would never have addressed otherwise and as uncomfortable as what we will encounter in our text today may be, we will all be left the richer and the wiser as we interface with this part of the whole counsel of God. Amen? So you ready? Okay. Uh, We saw last week how um, God rained down his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities after Lot had fled to the city of Zoar, Uh, We learn actually in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 23, that God also completely destroyed the cities of Zeboim and Adma. Of the five cities of this region in the Jordan Valley, four of them were completely destroyed and only Zoar was spared. And that's where things pick up in our passage uh, today, starting in verse 30. To appreciate What happens in our passage uh, today, we have to remember something about Lot that has become very apparent from the narrative of Genesis 19 so far. And that is that Lot has been tragically, shockingly unconcerned for the welfare of his family throughout the entirety of this chapter. We've seen this at several points. First of all, we saw Lot offering his two daughters over to the mob of the men of Sodom for them to do with his daughters sexually whatever they pleased. Secondly, the night before judgment falls, 
the angels tell Lot to bring his family and anyone else under his influence out of the city because it's going to be destroyed, they say. Well, Lot seems to act on that, and he goes to his sons-in-law, and he tells them to leave the city, but he doesn't say to them, come with me as I leave this city that is about to be destroyed. Instead, he just says, leave. Lot isn't so sure that he wants to leave the city himself. So he's not prepared to invite his sons-in-law or future sons-in-law to come with him as he leaves the city. So what he ends up saying to them ends up sounding like an insincere joke to them. So they basically spurn Lot's efforts and Lot heads home and ends up spending the night in his house with his family. The next morning, the angels say to Lot, they say to him, up, take your wife and your two daughters, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. You see the language there? The angels are not just telling Lot to flee the city. They're telling him to take his family out of danger. Yet amazingly, in verse 16, we're told that Lot hesitates to take his family out of danger. Lot should have taken his wife and his daughters by the hand and led them out of the city to safety. But Lot doesn't do that. He hesitates. So the angels end up taking Lot and taking his wife and his two daughters by the hand and pulls them out of the city to safety. It's sad that the angels have to step in and take the family members by the hand and do what Lot should have done for the members of his family. And then once outside the city, the angels tell Lot to flee to the mountains, but Lot hesitates again and pleads with them to let him flee to Zoar, a nearby city. And if you listen to Lot's pleas to the angels, you'll notice that at no point does Lot even mention his family even though his family members are standing right there with him. Everything Lot says is about him. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says to the angels, I cannot escape to the mountains lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Then he points to Zoar and says, please let me escape there that my life may be saved. There's no talk of we or us like a family man would talk. Just I and me. Imagine being Lot's wife and daughters and hearing the head of your household talk this way in a moment of great danger. And then it was while they were fleeing to Zoar that Lot's wife looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. And the text doesn't just tell us that she looked back. The text tells us her position in relation to Lot, telling us that she was behind him, meaning that Lot was not really bringing his wife to Zoar. He was fleeing to Zoar and leaving his wife behind him, letting her fall behind What's clear is that Lot was not as concerned about preserving his family as he should have been, and this would not have been lost on Lot's daughters. They've lost their mother because of Lot's delays and letting her fall behind him as they fled. The daughters are probably thinking, we've survived this catastrophe, but only because the angels took us by the hand, not dad. Our future marriages didn't survive because dad couldn't convince our future husbands to come with us. On top of that, if dad had his way, we would have been handed over to the mob and sexually abused and probably left for dead anyway. Lot may have survived the judgment of Sodom, but I'm not sure his daughter's respect for him survived because he was not as concerned about preserving his family as he should have been. 
So what we're going to see in our passage today is Lot's two daughters taking it upon themselves to care about their family and preserve what's left of their family into the next generation and beyond. If Lot doesn't care, they do. If Lot doesn't look after them, they will look after themselves and they will handle things in their own way, even if it's at their father's expense. We know from earlier in the chapter that these daughters have been virgins up to this point, saving themselves apparently for marriage, but now they're throwing caution to the wind. And in our passage today, they will give away their virginity in a most shameful way in order to accomplish the goal of preserving their family. Twice in our passage today, we're going to see the words that we may preserve our family. Verse 32 and 34, indicating that this is a major theme of this passage. This goal will be stated twice by Lot's oldest daughter. And what we have here in this passage, verses 30 through 38, is the story of how Lot's daughters will see to it that their family will be preserved into the next generation. So the way we're going to frame our study of the passage this morning is we'll observe six developments in the story of Lot's daughter's plan, their effort to preserve their family through their daughter, or through their father, I'm sorry. Number one, here's the first development in this sad tale, true historical account is Lot and his daughters move from Zoar to a mountain cave. Look at what Lot does in verse 30. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him. Why did Lot make this move? The text says, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. Commentators speculate on why it was that Lot was afraid to stay in Zoar. First of all, I think we can all understand and appreciate why uh, Lot would be plagued with fears, period. Almost certainly, Lot is suffering from PTSD, like we can't even imagine. And I'm sure he's suffering from many fears, some which are rational and some which are irrational. Lot has lost every friendship that he thought that he had with anyone in Sodom. He's also lost his wife and his two future sons-in-law. Also keep in mind that Zoar was originally marked out for destruction uh, together with the other cities in the Jordan Valley, which means that the residents of Zoar were every bit as wicked as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were. God only spared Zoar because of Lot's request, not because it was less wicked than Sodom and Gomorrah. So in all likelihood, the wicked behavior of the inhabitants of Zoar continued unabated after the catastrophe, and some commentators suggest that Lot here is heading for the mountains because he was convinced that God's going to destroy Zoar too. There were probably aftershocks and rumblings of the earth that made Lot fearful that judgment, another round of judgment and destruction might be breaking out at any moment again. Imagine how skittish he would be. I remember after the 9-11 attacks, people saying that, you know, for weeks after that, whenever they would see a plane in the sky, they were seized with fear. That's not rational, but we understand it. Imagine how skittish Lot would be. Also, keep in mind how traumatic of an experience it was For Lot to have every man of the city surround your house trying to break into your home and threatening to sexually assault you and your guest. Imagine how the after effects of this would carry over into Lot being in the wicked city of Zoar. You don't get over things like that overnight and just automatically start trusting people again. 
If the people of Zoar are just as wicked as the people of Sodom were, how can Lot actually feel at ease in Zoar? So whatever Lot's reasons were for being afraid to stay in Zoar, he was, in fact, afraid. And so he moved to the mountains, to the place where the angels had originally told him to go. And look at where he takes up residence. Verse 30, at the end of the verse, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Lot is now living the life of a recluse rather than the life of luxury and social standing that he once enjoyed in Sodom. Lot has come a long way downhill from living in a house in Sodom and having a seat in the gate of the city of Sodom. And twice in this verse, we're told that it is Lot with his two daughters. At the beginning of verse 30, we're told that Lot stayed in the mountains and his daughters with him. And at the end of the verse, we're told he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. It's just these three. No servants, no one else. Lot and his two daughters. One could ask, and commentators bring this up, why Lot chose not to return to Abraham at this point. Uh, But perhaps it was pride or shame of the compromises that Lot had allowed to happen in his life. It probably would have been very good and wholesome for Lot to return to Abraham at least for a time. And I would imagine his daughters would have easily found some young men of marriageable age among those associated with Abraham. But for whatever reason, Lot does not return to Abraham, whom he had parted from years earlier back in Genesis 13, which left his daughters without any prospect for husbands, at least in the near future. And this brings us to the next development in the story of Lot's daughters seeking to preserve their family through their father And that is, number two, Lot's older daughter invites her sister to join her in the plan to preserve their family through their father. Look at what she does. Verse 31, then the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. Commentators take this to mean that Lot was old. But I'm not convinced of that. You cannot go on just what a daughter says to determine if a father is old. (laughs) Trust me on that. My daughters were calling me old when I was 35. (laughs) Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of the earth. So she refers to her father as old at the very least what she is saying, whether this is factually true or not, this is her perception is that her father is old and old enough that he will not likely be remarrying and having any more sons who might carry on the family name. Additionally, Lot's oldest daughter says, and there's not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of earth. This is almost certainly an exaggeration. But she, in this moment, seems to be thinking that she'll be living the rest of her existence in her father's cave, living a life that is isolated from others. On top of that, the population, keep in mind, of the entire valley of the Jordan Valley has been destroyed with the exception of the small wicked town of Zoar, and this leaves Lot's oldest daughter with the belief that there will be no man around to marry them and enable them to have children and thus preserve Lot's family through the generations. Her concern probably is not simply the absence of available men, but also the the lack of interested men. In a day such as this when marriages were as much about joining families together and establishing social connections that were to one's own advantage, there's not much desirable here for a man that would make, in the eyes of a man, marriage to one of Lot's daughters appealing. Who would want to marry a girl 
living in a cave with her father and sister whose mother was killed in a calamity and whose father has lost everything. Regardless of how factually true or not, this daughter of Lot's concern is she assumes it's true and she presents a twofold plan to her younger sister to solve the problem that she is concerned about. Look at what she says in verse 32. She says to her younger sister, come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. Please notice that their plan is not simply to lie with their father. They knew that Lot would never do that. Such a plan would never work unless it was preceded by a first step, which is let us make our father drink wine. This is how we know that Lot's daughter knew that her plan was morally wrong because she felt the need to get her father drunk before she knew that she could get him to do such a thing. At the very least, it shows that she knew that Lot would view it as wrong and unthinkable for him to lie with his daughters. Knowing that her father would never do such a thing, she hatches a plan with her younger sister to get her father drunk first. She knew that getting her father to overindulge in wine would do two things. Number one, it would lower his inhibitions and his natural sense of shame and morality and free him up to do things that he would never otherwise do. And number two, it would hinder him possibly from even remembering the details of whatever came about between him and his daughters. So this is the older daughter's goal, to preserve their family through their father. And we will see her sister joining her in this sinful plan. At no point does the text say that these two daughters prayed about their situation. At no point do they ask God to provide a husband in his perfect timing and trust him with that. At no point does God even show up in this daughter's words that she speaks. Her thinking is logical, it's efficient, and it's godless. Instead of trusting God, she and her sister will follow their own wisdom in preserving their family through their father. In order to achieve their goal, their father will need to lie with them And in order to get him to lie with them, they will need to get him drunk first. So look at what they do. And this brings us to the third development in the story of Lot's daughters preserving their family through their father. Number three, Lot's older daughter carries out her part in this plan to preserve their family through their father. Look at the first thing they do. Verse 33 So they made their father drink wine that night. They immediately, they didn't think about this. The day that the older daughter brought it to the younger daughter, that night they executed their plan. And they worked together on this part of the plan. The text says they made their father drink wine that night. And they probably had little trouble getting Lot to drink to ease his troubled spirits. So they sit down and start drinking with their father and he drinks until they observe that he is sufficiently drunk. And once Lot was good and drunk, the text tells us what the oldest daughter does next. Look at what she does. Verse 33, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The language of the text here indicates that Lot would have resorted to the private place where he slept, or maybe he was there all along as he was drinking. But regardless, the text tells us that the firstborn went in, meaning she went into the room where Lot was, and there she lay 
with her father. We're also told here that Lot was so drunk that he did not know when she lay down with him and when she arose. This doesn't mean necessarily that he's unconscious. It just means that he was not fully aware of what was going on in a way that he would remember the next day. He did not know when his older daughter lay down with him. He did not know when she arose, but clearly sex occurred. You may ask at this point of the text, is Lot responsible for doing something like this that is wrong when he is drunk and has no idea what he's doing? My answer is absolutely. Lot is responsible for allowing himself to get so drunk that he ends up doing something that he would never otherwise do. He had a choice in this whole sordid episode, and he chose to let himself get drunk. The Bible tells us that we will all be judged for every word we speak and for everything that we do in the body, whether it be good or bad. And there is not some fine print in Scripture that adds the words, unless you said and did such and such when you were drunk. This is why drunkenness is so serious. This is why the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. Guys, you slay a thousand giants in your life and you prevent a thousand evils by simply making the choice to never allow yourself to become intoxicated with wine. But Lot didn't make that choice here. So the oldest daughter achieves her goal and takes sexual advantage of her father. So look at what happens next. And this brings us to the next development in this account of Lot's daughters preserving their family through their father. And that is Lot's older daughter prods or urges her younger sister to follow through on her part of the plan. She prods her sister, first of all, by telling her sister what she did. Look at what happens in verse 34. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Notice the word behold. There's a sense of glee in her voice, boldly declaring without shame to her younger sister what she had done with her father the night before. I have little doubt that there was some sense of conscience at work in the younger sister who is still a virgin at this point. But hearing her older sister tell her what she did the night before would serve to quiet her sense of conscience and increase her boldness to do what her older sister had done. The older sister then invites her younger sister to execute the same plan again, only this time for the younger sister's benefit. She says to her younger sister, let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. Lot's oldest daughter is purpose-driven. She is single-minded in her goal to preserve their family through their father. She's inviting her sister to join her in her plan. And then she's giving her sister counsel, saying, here, this is what you need to do. To those of you young people that are a part of this congregation, especially those of you young people who are the oldest among your siblings, Please be mindful of the influence that you have on your siblings. The impact of your example on your younger siblings. The choices that you make in your life are being watched by them. And they're learning from your example. They're also listening to the counsel that you give them. They're listening to the things that you say. I read years ago a study that showed that one sibling's often has as much impact on a child's development as the parents do, given the volume of time that siblings spend 
with one another. So older siblings, lead your younger siblings well by example and by the godly counsel that you give to them, which is the opposite of what Lot's oldest daughter is doing here. Lot's oldest daughter is setting a bad example. She's giving bad counsel. So look at what happens, which brings us to the next development in the story of Lot's daughters preserving their family through their father, and that is that Lot's younger daughter carries out her part of this sordid plan. Look at what they do, verse 35. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and then once they got their father good and drunk, the text says, and the younger arose and lay with him. And once again, we're told that Lot did not know what was going on. The text tells us, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose, but clearly immorality took place. While in a drunken stupor, Lot is being exploited once again without his consent. All sex outside of marriage is a violation of God's righteous law. Sexual exploitation of another without their consent is an additional layer of violation against God's righteous law. And add to this that this is a kind of incest taking place here that all cultures viewed as wrong and will be prohibited in God's law that is given to his people, the people of Israel. This also brings the irony of this chapter full circle. Lot offered his daughters to the mob sexually without his daughter's consent And his daughters are now taking sexual advantage of their father without his consent. Lot gave the men of Sodom permission to violate his daughters. And here it turns out that Lot himself is doing that violating. Does the plan that Lot's two daughters have uh, that they've implemented here, does it work? Well, yes. And this brings us to the final development in the story of Lot's daughters preserving their family through their father. We learn here, development number six, that Lot's daughters conceive and bear children through their father. Look at what the text says, verse 36. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Keep in mind that conception is not an automatic thing. We learn in scripture that it is God who opens wombs and closes wombs. God here evidently chooses to open the womb of these daughters that they might conceive a child. Nine months go by, and then look at what happens. Verse 37, the firstborn daughter bore a son and called his name Moab. The name Moab literally means from father. That's the meaning of the name Moab, from the father. So Lot's shame is now a double shame. His daughter took advantage of him when he was drunk, and he unwittingly sires a child through his daughter, and then the daughter gives her son the name from father. Now the whole world will know, and Lot's daughter doesn't seem to care. Men, be very careful the choices that you make. It may be that the deeds that you do in secret will be shouted from the rooftops one day. Speaking from the vantage point of his own day, Moses adds this explanation. He says, he, Moab, is the father of the Moabites to this day. The Moabites dwelt in Moses' day on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and the Israelites will encounter the Moabite people on their way to the promised land. Moses wants the Israelites of his own day to know that the Moabites are the descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot, who produced a child through his oldest daughter. 
a child whose name was Moab. Look at what happens to the younger daughter, verse 38. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. Lot's younger daughter is a little bit more discreet in what she names her son, but only slightly. Ben-Ami literally means son of my kinsman. And there's only one male kinsman in her life right now, and that's her father. So it would not have taken a rocket scientist to know where this son came from as well. Both of Lot's daughters have obtained the sons that they wanted, and the names they give their sons are essentially a boast of their achievement. As for Ben-Ami, Moses adds this explanation. He says, he, Ben-Ami, is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. The Ammonites dwelt north of the Moabites uh, to the east of the Jordan River, and the Israelites will encounter them as they enter the promised land. As many of you already know, and you're thinking about this as we're talking about the Moabites and the Ammonites, it's worth noting here that the Moabites and the Ammonites will end up being perpetual thorns in Israel's side throughout Israel's history. When the children of Israel are on their way, for example, to the promised land, the Moabites will refuse to show hospitality to them and give them food and water to drink. The Moabites will also hire the false prophet Balaam to try to curse Israel to cause them to fail in their endeavor to take the promised land. And it's the Moabites that will also send women out to Israel's encampment and they will succeed in seducing many Israelites to join them in their immorality and idolatry. In similar ways, the Ammonites were inhospitable to the Israelites, refusing them food when they were on their way to the promised land because the Ammonites and Moabites' uh, lack of hospitality towards the Israelites and because of their actions against Israel before they entered the promised land, God will, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, prohibit any Moabite or Ammonite for 10 generations from ever entering into the assembly of the Lord. Even later in Israel's history, the Moabites and the Ammonites often made war against Israel and always took the side in virtually every dispute. They took the side of Israel's enemies, making it true beyond dispute that the sinful choices that Lot and his daughters make in our passage today led to a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of sin and loss of life for the people of Israel in the centuries that followed. Choices have consequences. Choices have consequences, ever enlarging consequences that resonate through the centuries. As we wrap up our study of this passage for today, there's a few things I think we should ponder and gain insight from. First of all, this is the last that we see of Lot in the Genesis narrative. And we see in this story the sad fruition of Lot's choices in life, starting from the time that he left Abraham back in Genesis chapter 13. Guys, if you would have told Lot back in Genesis 13 when he was saying goodbye to Abraham that the day would come that he would lose everything and be left to living in a cave with his two daughters and that he would be fathering a child through his two daughters, Lot would have been offended. And he would have said, that would never happen to me. I would never do such a thing. Yet he did. Why? Because Lot set up his encampment on the outskirts of Sodom in Genesis 13, and then he lived in Sodom in Genesis 14 and Genesis 19, and then he became a man of the city of Sodom, sitting 
in Sodom's gate, and he allowed the spirit of Sodom to infect himself and to infect his family, and then he lost his wife and his sons-in-law, and here he is letting himself get drunk with wine and then doing something that you know years earlier he would have said was absolutely unthinkable. And we all should take warning from this. Beware of the deceitfulness and the slow progression of sin, leading you astray little by little by little, setting you up for the big failures later in life that right now you're saying, I would never do that. It could be that years earlier, Satan had on his war room wall the goal, get Lot to commit adultery or to commit immorality with his two daughters and raise up from the fruit of that immorality descendants who will be a thorn in the side of Abraham's descendants. That may have been the big goal. And then Satan executed a 20 30-year plan of a million temptations and a million little compromises to get Lot to a point where Lot would commit this sin. And I wonder if Satan has such a plan for my life and for your life. Something he aims to get you to do in some future day. And he's seducing are trying to seduce you and me into a thousand little compromises, so little we don't even notice the progression until one day our souls are in such a place that we take the next step and we do what 20 years earlier we would have said, I would never do that. Almost every man or woman that I've ever counseled who has committed adultery, for example, all of them are shocked at what they've done. And all of them say something like, I never knew this would happen to me. Beware of the deceitfulness and the slow progression of sin that will eat your soul out like a cancer and shape your soul in such a way that you will one day do the unthinkable. There's something else we can learn from this passage. And that is the truth of Proverbs 20, verse 1, where Solomon says, Wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler. And whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. There's no way around this. Wine figures prominently in this shameful story of Lot and his two daughters in verse 32, we see the words, let us make him drink wine. In verse 33, we see the words, so they made their father drink wine. In verse 34, we see the words, let us make him drink wine. And in verse 35, we see the words, so they made their father drink wine. And you could add to that the two times that the statement is made that because Lot essentially was drunk, he did not know. He was not in control of his faculties. He did not know when his daughters lay down with him and when they arose. In the end, Lot engages in behaviors with his daughters that he would have never engaged in if he was sober. Why did he do what he did with his daughters? He did what he did because he was drunk. And drunk people do things that they would never do sober. As for Lot's daughters, they're smart. They know the power of wine to break down a person's defenses and inhibit their natural sense of shame and their moral code and even diminish their memory. These daughters know that a drunk person will do things that they would not otherwise do. And you, all of us, including me, should learn from this passage a truth about Satan's strategies. There are many things that Satan would love to get you and me to do, but he knows that he cannot get us to do some of those things unless he first 
gets sufficient wine into us. And so the first step of his strategy on his war room wall for many people looks like something you see on the screen. Let's make him or her drink wine and then, and he fills in the blank. And I would call upon you, don't give Satan that opportunity. Don't be stupid. Either completely abstain from alcohol, as many of us do, as I do, or don't ever let yourself get anywhere even close to intoxication if you drink, regardless of the pressure that others may put upon you. Whoever is intoxicated by wine is a fool. They're behaving as a fool. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says to Christians, Do not get drunk with wine, wherein is dissipation. And the Greek word that is translated dissipation could literally be translated. It's, it's the word no and then the word salvation. No salvation. You could translate it, wherein is unsavedness. Paul is telling the Ephesians not to get drunk with wine because drunkenness itself is unsaved behavior. And because contained inside of being drunk with wine is a whole universe of other unsaved behaviors. Drunkenness causes a person to forget who they are in Christ if they're a believer. Drunkenness literally deactivates the control of the Holy Spirit in a person's life and puts the flesh in control, leading to behaviors like what we see in our passage today. And that's why Paul offers you a better path than the path of drunkenness, the path of believing in Jesus Christ, he offers and being filled by the Spirit. Guys, when the Spirit is filling you up, what starts coming out of you is behaviors like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you won't be breaking laws when you're controlled by the spirit in this way, when you are under the control of the Holy Spirit, you don't have the need for intoxicating spirits. So be warned by this. And you say, well, Lot, he's, we're not impressed with him in Genesis 19. Of course, he'd do something stupid like this in this passage. Well, go back to the story of Noah, the most righteous man on the planet who let himself get drunk and ended up shaming himself in his tent, leading to the sin of his son, Ham, leading to a curse from Noah upon Ham that affected Ham's descendants for the centuries to come. Take warning from both what happened to Noah and Lot. There's one more lesson we can ponder this morning, and I think this one can give us hope and encouragement. A sordid tale as this passage is, we're left wondering if this is too much of a twisted wreck for God to bring any good out of. We find ourselves asking what possible good could come from this sorry episode in Lot's life. We know that God could have closed the wombs of Lot's daughters and prevented them from conceiving, but he didn't do that. He opened their wombs, and by God's sovereign decree, Moab and Ben-Ami are born. We see in Scripture that God never held it against Moab, and he never held it against Ben-Ami, nor all of their descendants, he never held it against them that they were the product of incest and non-consensual sex. In Deuteronomy 2, God actually tells the Israelites 
telling them to go in and take the land, but he says, don't take the land that the Moabites and the Ammonites are dwelling in because I've given that to them as an inheritance. God treated Moab and Ben-Ami with respect just as we should treat infants conceived in incest and rape. Why punish such infants and abort them because of crimes committed not by them, but by one or both of their parents. On top of that, though God pronounces judgments upon the Moabites and the Ammonites because of the way that they treated the Israelites when they were approaching the promised land, God does make it clear in the Old Testament that the Moabites and the Ammonites will be among the families of the earth that will be blessed through Abraham and his ultimate seed, the Messiah. In fact, after promising certain judgments upon Moab in Jeremiah 48, God then says this in verse 47. He says, yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. In the next chapter, Um, After pronouncing judgments against the Ammonites for their sins in Jeremiah 49, verse 6, God says, but afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the sons of Ammon. In a future day under the reign of God's Messiah, Moab and Ammon will experience a restoration of good fortune under his reign. So when God promised Abraham that he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. He was including the Moabites and the Ammonites in that promise. And when you think about it and read the rest of scripture, it's no wonder God did this. It's no wonder he aims to do this. Did you know that Lot is an ancestor of Jesus Christ? We all know that Abraham is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. But did you know that Lot is also? Think about it. Through his oldest daughter, Lot has a son named Moab. And from that son would come the Moabites. And from the Moabites would come a godly woman named Ruth, who would one night herself enter into the room of an Israelite man named Boaz and offer herself as available for marriage. And once married to Boaz, Ruth gave birth to Obed. And Obed would have a son named Jesse. And Jesse would have a son named David, the king of Israel and in the lineage of Christ. Think about that. David's great-grandmother was a Moabite woman, a descendant of Lot. Jesus had a Moabite ancestor meaning that Jesus had Moabite blood in him, teaching us that God can take the most twisted of situations and bring redemptive good out of them to achieve his larger redemptive purposes. More than that, Jesus is actually the true Moab. Moab means, as we've seen, from the Father, and Jesus is the ultimate one who came forth from the Father. The fact that he states in the Gospel of John in more than one place. You say, what about the Ammonites? Well, you'll be interested to know that several hundred years after Genesis 19, King Solomon will marry an Ammonitess, an Ammonite woman named Nema. And through Nema, a son would be born to Solomon by the name of Rehoboam, who would become king of Israel after Solomon. Rehoboam would be the grandfather of King Asa and the great-grandfather of King Jehoshaphat. Rehoboam is in the messianic genealogy of Matthew 1, telling us that he was an ancestor of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. So Jesus' mother had Moabite blood in her, and Jesus' earthly father had Ammonite blood in him. And under the future reign of Jesus Christ, the sons of Moab and of Ammon will be blessed. And Lot, whom we know in Second Peter chapter 2, was a righteous man 
of deeply flawed character, and Lot will be left scratching his head in amazement at the marvelous ways of God and taking the twisted wreckage of Lot's life and causing that to work together for good for the sake of those whom God has purposed to save. Guys, never underestimate how God can use the wrath of man to praise him or how he can use the wrongs done against you and bend those wrongs to his purposes and cause them to serve his redemptive purposes in the world. I'm sure Lot felt violated when he realized what his daughters had done to him, just as I'm sure that his daughters felt violated when their father tried to sex traffic them to the mob of sodomite men. Some of you in this congregation have been exploited and sinned against sexually by people who use their power, their positions of trust, or family relationship to take advantage of you. I just want you to know God knows what they did and he knows your pain. And a story like we see today shows that the evils that others do, the evils done against you are never the end of the story, ever. Just like the horrible evils that people did against Christ at the cross was not the end of the story. So Genesis 19, 30 through 38, I think is a text worthy of a sermon this morning because there's so much for us to gain from a passage like this. Plus, this isn't just Lot's story. It's our story. Letting us know some of the beginnings of how it was that our Savior would come into the world and bring salvation to broken sinners like us and teaching us that no matter how broken our life or our family situations are, we should never underestimate how God can use our circumstances to further his redemptive purposes in the world. And what is not to love about a God and a Savior like that? Amen? Let's pray together. Lord's sin is real. Its power is real. Its work in the lives of people, including us, is something to be deeply sobered by. And we seeing this whole chapter that we can now say that we've all survived. Genesis 19 is just filled with fresh reminders of the need to be vigilant, to hate sin, to watch out for ourselves and for one another. And we're so thankful for how everything we have seen points us to Jesus again and again and again. I pray for any sins that any in this congregation have committed that you would enable them to run to the cross, take them by the hand and lead them to the cross where they can know that Jesus died for the sins that we commit and they can have atonement, they can have forgiveness, they can have redemption. For those in our congregation that have been deeply wounded and wronged, may they too go to the cross and see at the cross a Savior who bore their every sorrow and grief that they have ever known. And that he gets it. He understands their pain. And that whatever wrongs have been done against them, those wrongs are not more powerful than he is. And help them to look to you. Make us a holy people, Lord, filled with your wisdom and not the wisdom of this world that wrecks and destroys, 
We thank you for this opportunity to give up our offerings to you, Lord, and we just ask that you would receive the offerings we give and do much with everything that's given for the glory of Jesus. And we give ourselves to you in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,